This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Moira Fogarty. The Gerard Street Mystery by John Charles Dent. My name is William Francis Furlong. My occupation is that of a commission merchant, and my place of business is on St. Paul Street in the city of Montreal. I have resided in Montreal ever since shortly after my marriage in 1862 to my cousin Alice Plater of Toronto. My name may not be familiar to the present generation of Torontonians, though I was born in Toronto and passed the early years of my life there. Since the days of my youth my visits to the upper province have been few, and, with one exception, very brief, so that I have doubtless passed out of the remembrance of many persons with whom I was once on terms of intimacy. Still, there are several residents of Toronto whom I am happy to number among my warmest personal friends at the present day. There are also a good many persons of middle age, not in Toronto only, but scattered here and there throughout various parts of Ontario, who will have no difficulty in recalling my name as that of one of their fellow students at Upper Canada College. The name of my late uncle, Richard Yardington, is of course well known to all old residents of Toronto, where he spent the last thirty-two years of his life. He settled there in the year 1829, when the place was still known as Little York. He opened a small store on Young Street, and his commercial career was a reasonably prosperous one. By steady degrees the small store developed into what, in those times, was regarded as a considerable establishment. In the course of years the owner acquired a competency, and in 1854 retired from business altogether. From that time up to the day of his death he lived in his own house on Gerard Street. After mature deliberation I have resolved to give to the Canadian public an account of some rather singular circumstances connected with my residence in Toronto. Though repeatedly urged to do so, I have hitherto refrained from giving any extended publicity to those circumstances, in consequence of my inability to see any good to be served thereby. The only person, however, whose reputation can be injuriously affected by the details has been dead for some years. He has left behind him no one whose feelings can be shocked by the disclosure, and the story is in itself sufficiently remarkable to be worth the telling. Told accordingly it shall be and the only fictitious element introduced into the narrative shall be the name of one of the persons most immediately concerned in it. At the time of taking up his abode in Toronto, or rather in Little York, my uncle Richard was a widower and childless, his wife having died several months previously. His only relatives on this side of the Atlantic were two maiden sisters, a few years younger than himself. He never contracted a second matrimonial alliance, and for some time after his arrival here his sisters lived in his house, and were dependent upon him for support. After the lapse of a few years both of them married and settled down in homes of their own. The elder of them subsequently became my mother. She was left a widow when I was a mere boy, and survived my father only a few months. I was an only child, and as my parents had been in humble circumstances, the charge of my maintenance devolved upon my uncle to whose kindness I am indebted for such educational training as I have received. After sending me to school and college for several years, he took me into his store and gave me my first insight into commercial life. I lived with him, and both then and always received at his hands the kindness of a father, 
in which light I eventually almost came to regard him. His youngest sister, who was married to a watchmaker called Elias Plater, lived at Quebec from the time of her marriage until her death, which took place in 1846. Her husband had been unsuccessful in business, and was, moreover, of dissipated habits. He was left with one child, a daughter, on his hands, and as my uncle was averse to the idea of his sister's child remaining under the control of one so unfit to provide for her welfare, he proposed to adopt the little girl as his own. To this proposition Mr. Elias Plater readily assented, and little Alice was soon domiciled with her uncle and myself in Toronto. Brought up, as we were, under the same roof, and seeing each other every day of our lives, a childish attachment sprang up between my cousin Alice and myself. As the years rolled by, this attachment ripened into a tender affection, which eventually resulted in an engagement between us. Our engagement was made with the full and cordial approval of my uncle, who did not share the prejudice entertained by many persons against marriage between cousins. He stipulated, however, that our marriage should be deferred until I had seen somewhat more of the world, and until we had both reached an age when we might reasonably be presumed to know our own minds. He was also, not unnaturally, desirous that before taking upon myself the responsibility of marriage, I should give some evidence of my ability to provide for a wife, and for other contingencies usually consequent upon matrimony. He made no secret of his intention to divide his property between Alice and myself at his death and the fact that no actual division would be necessary in the event of our marriage with each other was doubtless one reason for his ready acquiescence in our engagement. He was, however, of a vigorous constitution, strictly regular and methodical in all his habits, and likely to live to an advanced age. He could hardly be called parsimonious, but, like most men who have successfully fought their own way through life, he was rather fond of authority, and little disposed to divest himself of his wealth until he should have no further occasion for it. He expressed his willingness to establish me in business, either in Toronto or elsewhere, and to give me the benefit of his experience in all mercantile transactions. When matters had reached this pass, I had just completed my twenty-first year, my cousin being three years younger. Since my uncle's retirement I had engaged in one or two little speculations on my own account, which had turned out fairly successful but I had not devoted myself to any regular or fixed pursuit. Before any definite arrangements had been concluded as to the course of my future life, a circumstance occurred which seemed to open a way for me to turn to good account such mercantile talent as I possessed. An old friend of my uncle's opportunely arrived in Toronto from Melbourne, Australia, where, in the course of a few years, he had risen from the position of a junior clerk to that of senior partner in a prominent commercial house. He painted the land of his adoption in glowing colours, and assured my uncle and myself that it presented an inviting field for young men of energy and business capacity, more especially if he had a small capital at his command. The matter was carefully debated in our domestic circle. I was naturally averse to a separation from Alice, but my imagination took fire at Mr. Redpath's glowing account of his own splendid success. I pictured myself returning to Canada after an absence of four or five years with a mountain of gold at my command as the result of my own energy and acuteness. In imagination I saw myself settled down with Alice in palatial mansion on Jarvis Street and living in affluence all the rest of my days. My uncle bade me consult my own judgment in the matter but rather encouraged the idea than otherwise. 
he offered to advance me five hundred pounds, and I had about half that sum as the result of my own speculations. Mr. Redpath, who was just about returning to Melbourne, promised to aid me to the extent of his power with his local knowledge and advice. In less than a fortnight from that time, he and I were on our way to the other side of the globe. We reached our destination early in the month of September, 1857. My life in Australia has no direct bearing upon the course of events to be related, and may be passed over in a very few words. I engaged in various enterprises, and achieved a certain measure of success. If none of my ventures proved eminently prosperous, I at least met with no serious disasters. At the end of four years, that is to say, in September 1861, I made up my account with the world, and found I was worth ten thousand dollars. I had, however, become terribly homesick, and longed for the termination of my voluntary exile. I had, of course, kept up a regular correspondence with Alice and Uncle Richard, and of late they had both pressed me to return home. "'You have enough,' wrote my uncle, "'to give you a start in Toronto, and I see no reason why Alice and you should keep apart any longer. You will have no housekeeping expenses, for I intend you to live with me.' I am getting old, and shall be glad of your companionship in my declining years. You will have a comfortable home while I live, and when I die you will get all I have between you. Write as soon as you receive this, and let us know how soon you can be here. The sooner the better." The letter containing this pressing invitation found me in a mood very much disposed to accept it. The only enterprise I had on hand which would be likely to delay me was a transaction in wool, which, as I believed, would be closed by the end of January, or the beginning of February. By the first of March I should certainly be in a condition to start on my homeward voyage, and I determined that my departure should take place about that time. I wrote both to Alice and my uncle, apprising them of my intention, and announcing my expectation to reach Toronto not later than the middle of May. The letters so written were posted on the 19th of September, in time for the mail which left on the following day. On the 27th, to my huge surprise and gratification, the wool transaction referred to was unexpectedly concluded, and I was at liberty, if so disposed, to start for home by the next fast mail steamer, the Southern Cross, leaving Melbourne on the 11th of October. I was so disposed, and made my preparations accordingly. It was useless, I reflected, to write to my uncle or to Alice, acquainting them with the change in my plans, for I should take the shortest route home, and should probably be in Toronto as soon as a letter could get there. I resolved to telegraph from New York upon my arrival there, so as not to take them altogether by surprise. The morning of the 11th of October found me on board the Southern Cross, where I shook hands with Mr. Redpath and several other friends who accompanied me on board for last farewell. The particulars of the voyage to England are not pertinent to the story, and may be given very briefly. I took the Red Sea route, and arrived at Marseilles about two o'clock in the afternoon of the twenty-ninth of November. From Marseilles I travelled by rail to Calais, and so impatient was I to reach my journey's end without loss of time, that I did not even stay over to behold the glories of Paris. I had a commission to execute in London, which, however, delayed me there only a few hours, and I hurried down to Liverpool, in the hope of catching the Cunard steamer for New York. I missed it by about two hours, but the Persia was detailed to start on a special trip to Boston the following day. I secured a berth, and at eight o'clock the next morning steamed out of the Mersey on my way homeward. 
The voyage from Liverpool to Boston consumed fourteen days. All I need say about it is that before arriving at the latter port I formed an intimate acquaintance with one of the passengers, Mr. Junius H. Gridley, a Boston merchant, who was returning from a hurried business trip to Europe. He was, and is, a most agreeable companion. We were thrown together a good deal during the voyage, and we then laid the foundation of a friendship which has ever since subsisted between us. Before the dome of the State House loomed in sight, he had extracted a promise from me to spend a night with him before pursuing my journey. We landed at the wharf in East Boston on the evening of the 17th of December, and I accompanied him to his house on West Newton Street, where I remained until the following morning. Upon consulting the timetable, we found that the Albany Express would leave at 11.30 a.m. This left several hours at my disposal, and we sallied forth immediately after breakfast to visit some of the lions of the American Athens. In the course of our peregrinations through the streets, we dropped into the post office, which had recently been established in the Merchants' Exchange Building on Slate Street. Seeing the countless piles of mail matter, I jestingly remarked to my friend that there seemed to be letters enough there to go around the whole human family. He replied in the same mood, whereupon I banteringly suggested the probability that among so many letters surely there ought to be one for me. "'Nothing more reasonable,' he replied. "'We Bostonians are always bountiful to strangers. Here is the general delivery, and here is the department where letters addressed to the Furlong family are kept in stock. Pray inquire for yourself.' The joke, I confess, was not a very brilliant one, but with a grave countenance I stepped up to the wicket, and asked the young lady in attendance, <clears throat> "'Anything for W. F. Furlong?' She took from a pigeonhole a handful of correspondence, and proceeded to run her eye over the addresses. When about half the pile had been exhausted she stopped, and propounded the usual inquiry in case of strangers. "'Where do you expect letters from?' "'From Toronto,' I replied." To my no small astonishment she immediately handed me a letter, bearing the Toronto postmark. The address was in the peculiar and well-known handwriting of my Uncle Richard. Scarcely crediting the evidence of my senses, I tore open the envelope and read as follows. Toronto, 9th December, 1861 My dear William, I am so glad to know that you are coming home so much sooner than you expected when you wrote last and that you will eat your Christmas dinner with us. For reasons which you will learn when you arrive, it will not be a very merry Christmas at our house, but your presence will make it much more bearable than it would be without you. I have not told Alice that you are coming. Let it be a joyful surprise for her, as some compensation for the sorrows she has had to endure lately. You needn't telegraph. I will meet you at the GWR station. Your affectionate uncle, Richard Yardington. "'Why, what's the matter?' asked my friend, seeing the blank look of surprise on my face. "'Of course the letter is not for you. Why on earth did you open it?' "'It, it is for me,' I answered. "'See here, Gridley, old man, have you been playing me a trick? If you haven't, this is the strangest thing I ever knew in my life.' Of course he hadn't been playing me a trick. A moment's reflection showed me that such a thing was impossible. Here was the envelope, with the Toronto postmark of the ninth of December, at which time he had been with me on board the Persia on the banks of Newfoundland. Besides, he was a gentleman and would not have played so poor and stupid a joke upon a guest. And, to put the matter beyond all possibility of doubt, I remembered that I had never mentioned my cousin's name in his hearing. 
I handed him the letter. He read it carefully through, twice over, and was as much mystified at its contents as myself. For during our passage across the Atlantic I had explained to him the circumstance under which I was returning home. By what conceivable means had my uncle been made aware of my departure from Melbourne? Had Mr. Redpath written to him, as soon as I acquainted that gentleman with my intentions? But even if such were the case, the letter could not have left before I did, and could not possibly have reached Toronto by the ninth of December. Had I been seen in England by someone who knew me, and had not one written from there? Most unlikely. And even if such a thing had happened, it was impossible that the letter could have reached Toronto by the ninth. I need hardly inform the reader that there was no telegraphic communication at that time. And how could my uncle know that I would take the Boston route? And if he had known, how could he foresee that I would do anything so absurd as to call at the Boston post office and inquire for letters? I will meet you at the GWR station. How was he to know by what train I would reach Toronto, unless I notified him by telegraph, and that he expressly stated to be unnecessary? We did no more sightseeing. I obeyed the hint contained in the letter, and sent no telegram. My friend accompanied me down to the Boston and Albany station, where I waited in feverish impatience for the departure of the train. We talked over the matter until eleven-thirty, in the vain hope of finding some clue to the mystery. Then I started on my journey. Mr. Gridley's curiosity was aroused, and I promised to send him an explanation immediately upon my arrival at home. No sooner had the train glided out of the station than I settled myself in my seat, drew the tantalizing letter from my pocket, and proceeded to read and re-read it again and again. A very few perusals sufficed to fix its contents in my memory, so that I could repeat every word with my eyes shut. Still I continued to scrutinize the paper, the penmanship, and even the tint of the ink. For what purpose, do you ask? For no purpose, except that I hoped, in some mysterious manner, to obtain more light on the subject. No light came, however. The more I scrutinized and pondered, the greater was my mystification. The paper was a simple sheet of white letter-paper, of the kind ordinarily used by my uncle in his correspondence. So far as I could see, there was nothing peculiar about the ink. Anyone familiar with my uncle's writing could have sworn that no hand but his had penned the lines. His well-known signature, a masterpiece of involved hieroglyphics, was there in all its indistinctness, written as no one but himself could ever have written it. And yet, for some unaccountable reason, I was half disposed to suspect forgery. Forgery! What nonsense! Anyone clever enough to imitate Richard Yardington's handwriting would have employed his talents more profitably than indulging in a mischievous and purposeless jest. Not a bank in Toronto but would have discounted a note with that signature affixed to it. Desisting from all attempts to solve these problems, I then tried to fathom the meaning of other points in the letter. What misfortune had happened to mar the Christmas festivities at my uncle's house? And what could that reference to my cousin Alice's sorrows mean? She was not ill. That, I thought, might be taken for granted. My uncle would hardly have referred to her illness as one of the sorrows she had to endure lately. Certainly illness may be regarded in the light of a sorrow, but sorrow was not precisely the word which a straightforward man like Uncle Richard would have applied to it. I could conceive of no other cause of affliction in her case. My uncle was well, as was evinced by his having written the letter, 
and by his avowed intention to meet me at the station. Her father had died long before I started for Australia. She had no other near relation except myself, and she had no cause for anxiety, much less for sorrow, on my account. I thought it singular, too, that my uncle, having in some strange manner become acquainted with my movements, had withheld the knowledge from Alice. It did not square with my preconceived ideas of him that he would derive any satisfaction from taking his niece by surprise. All was a muddle together, and as my temples throbbed with the intensity of my thoughts, I was half disposed to believe myself in a troubled dream from which I should presently awake. Meanwhile on glided the train. A heavy snowstorm delayed us for several hours, and we reached Hamilton too late for the midday express for Toronto. We got there, however, in time for the accommodation leaving at 3.15 p.m., and we would reach Toronto at 5.05. I walked from one end of the train to the other, in hopes of finding someone I knew, from whom I could make enquiries about home. Not a soul. I saw several persons whom I knew to be residents of Toronto, but none with whom I had ever been personally acquainted, and none of them would be likely to know anything about my uncle's domestic arrangements. All that remained to be done under these circumstances was to restrain my curiosity as well as I could until reaching Toronto. By the by, would my uncle really meet me at the station, according to his promise? Surely not. By what means could he possibly know that I would arrive by this train? Still, he seemed to have such accurate information respecting my proceedings that there was no saying where his knowledge began or ended. I tried not to think about the matter, but as the train approached Toronto my impatience became positively feverish in its intensity. We were not more than three minutes behind time as we glided in front of the Union Station. I passed out onto the platform of the car and peered intently through the darkness. Suddenly my heart gave a great bound. There, sure enough, standing in front of the door of the waiting-room, was my uncle, plainly discernible by the fitful glare of the overhanging lamps. Before the train came to a standstill, I sprang from the car and advanced towards him. He was looking out for me, but his eyes not being as young as mine, he did not recognize me until I grasped him by the hand. He greeted me warmly, seizing me by the waist, and almost raising me from the ground. I at once noticed several changes in his appearance, changes for which I was wholly unprepared. He had aged very much since I had last seen him, and the lines about his mouth had deepened considerably. The iron-gray hair which I remembered so well had disappeared, its place being supplied with a new and rather dandified-looking wig. The old-fashioned greatcoat which he had worn ever since I could remember had been supplanted by a modern frock of spruce-cut with seal-skin collar and cuffs. All this I noticed in the first hurried greetings that passed between us. "'Never mind your luggage, my boy,' he remarked. "'Leave it till tomorrow, when we will send down for it.' If you are not tired, we'll walk home instead of taking a cab. I have a good deal to say to you before we get there." I had not slept since leaving Boston, but was too much excited to be conscious of fatigue, and as will readily be believed, I was anxious enough to hear what he had to say. We passed from the station and proceeded up York Street, arm in arm. "'And now, Uncle Richard,' I said, as soon as we were well clear of the crowd, "'keep me no longer in suspense.' First and foremost, is Alice well? Quite well, but for reasons you will soon understand, she is in deep grief. You must know that— But, I interrupted, 
tell me in the name of all that's wonderful how you knew i was coming by this train and how did you come to write me at boston just then we came to the corner of front street where was a lamp post as we reached the spot where the light of the lamp was most brilliant he turned half round looked me full in the face and smiled a sort of wintry smile the expression of his countenance was almost ghastly uncle i quickly said what's the matter are, are you not well i am not as strong as i used to be and i have had a good deal to try me of late <clears throat> have patience and i will tell you all let us walk more slowly or i shall not finish before we get home in order that you may clearly understand how matters are i had better begin at the beginning and i hope you will not interrupt me with any questions till i have done how I knew you would call at the Boston Post Office, and that you would arrive in Toronto by this train, will come last in order. By the by, have you my letter with you? The one you wrote to me at Boston? Yes, here it is, I replied, taking it from my pocket-book. Let me have it. I handed it to him, and he put it into the breast-pocket of his inside coat. I wondered at this proceeding on his part, but made no remark upon it. We moderated our pace, and he began his narration. Of course, I don't pretend to remember his exact words, but they were to this effect. During the winter following my departure to Melbourne, he had formed the acquaintance of a gentleman who had then recently settled in Toronto. The name of this gentleman was Marcus Weatherly, who had commenced business as a wholesale provision merchant immediately upon his arrival, and had been engaged in it ever since. For more than three years the acquaintance between him and my uncle had been very slight, but during the last summer they had had some real estate transactions together, and had become intimate. Weatherly, who was comparatively a young man and unmarried, had been invited to the house on Gerard Street, where he had more recently become a pretty frequent visitor. More recently still, his visits had become so frequent that my uncle suspected him of a desire to be attentive to my cousin and had thought proper to enlighten him as to her engagement with me. From that day his visits had been voluntarily discontinued. My uncle had not given much consideration to the subject until a fortnight afterwards, when he had accidentally become aware of the fact that Weatherly was in embarrassed circumstances. Here my uncle paused in his narrative to take a breath. He then added, in a low tone, and putting his mouth almost close to my ear, "'And, Willie, my boy,' I have at last found out something else. He has forty-two thousand dollars falling due here and in Montreal within the next ten days, and he has forged my signature to acceptances for thirty-nine thousand seven hundred and sixteen dollars and twenty-four cents. Those, to the best of my belief, were his exact words. We had walked up York Street to Queen, and then had gone down Queen to Young, when we turned up the east side on our way homeward. At the moment when the last words were uttered, we had got a few yards north of Crookshank Street, immediately in front of a chemist's shop, which was, I think, the third house from the corner. The window of the shop was well lighted, and its brightness was reflected on the sidewalk in front. Just then, two gentlemen walking rapidly in the opposite direction to that we were taking brushed by us, but I was too deeply absorbed in my uncle's communication to pay much attention to passers-by. Scarcely had they passed, however, ere one of them stopped and exclaimed, "'Surely that is Willie Furlong!' I turned and recognized Johnny Gray, one of my oldest friends. I relinquished my uncle's arm for a moment and shook hands with Gray, 
who said, "'I am surprised to see you. I had heard only a few days ago that you were not to be here till next spring.' "'I am here,' I remarked, somewhat in advance of my own expectations. I then hurriedly inquired after several of our common friends, to which inquiries he briefly replied. "'All well,' he said. "'But you are in a hurry, and so am I. Don't let me detain you.' Be sure and look in on me to-morrow. You will find me at the old place in the Romaine buildings. We again shook hands, and he passed on down the street with the gentleman who accompanied him. I then turned to repossess myself of my uncle's arm. The old gentleman had evidently walked on, for he was not in sight. I hurried along, making sure of overtaking him before reaching Gould Street, for my interview with Gray had occupied barely a minute. In another minute I was at the corner of Gould Street. No signs of Uncle Richard. I quickened my pace to a run, which soon brought me to Gerard Street. Still no signs of my uncle. I had certainly not passed him on my way, and he could not have got farther on his homeward route than here. He must have called in at one of the stores, a strange thing for him to do under the circumstances. I retraced my steps all the way to the front of the chemist's shop, peering into every window and doorway as I passed along. No one in the least resembling him was to be seen. I stood still for a moment and reflected. Even if he had run at full speed, a thing most unseemly for him to do, he could not have reached the corner of Gerard Street before I had done so. And what should he run for? He certainly did not wish to avoid me, for he had more to tell me before reaching home. Perhaps he had turned down Gould Street. At any rate, there was no use waiting for him. I might as well go home at once. And I did. Upon reaching the old familiar spot, I opened the gate, passed on up the steps to the front door, and rang the bell. The door was opened by a domestic who had not formed part of the establishment in my time, and who did not know me. But Alice happened to be passing through the hall, and heard my voice as I inquired for Uncle Richard. Another moment and she was in my arms. With a strange foreboding at my heart, I noticed that she was in deep mourning. We passed into the dining-room, where the table was laid for dinner. "'Has Uncle Richard come in?' I asked, as soon as we were alone. "'Why did he run away from me?' "'Who?' exclaimed Alice with a start. "'What do you mean, Willie? Is it possible you have not heard?' "'Heard what?' "'I see you. You have not heard,' she replied." "'Sit down, Willie, and prepare yourself for painful news. "'But first tell me what you meant by saying what you did just now. "'Who was it that ran away from you?' "'Well, perhaps I should hardly call it running away, "'but he certainly disappeared most mysteriously, "'down here near the corner of Young and Crookshank Streets.' "'Of whom are you speaking?' "'Of Uncle Richard, of course.' "'Uncle Richard? "'The corner of Young and Crookshank Streets? "'When did you see him there?' when a quarter of an hour ago he met me at the station and we walked up together till i met johnny gray i turned to speak to johnny for a moment when willie what on earth are you talking about you are laboring under some strange delusion uncle richard died of apoplexy more than six weeks ago and lies buried in st james's cemetery end of part one the gerard street mystery Read by Moira Fogarty in Toronto, Ontario, October 2006.